You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans 5, 6 to 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'm excited for this this year, uh, this Christmas season. I think it's it's the best time of year. Um, and I didn't always think that. I, I, I spent time working retail for a number of years, and I, for a long time, I just despised Christmas. It was chaos. And, uh, and so I'm really glad to be with you all this morning and singing these songs and, and starting this new sermon series. What I realize is, is that it's very common for us to be familiar with the song. You know the tune, you can hum along to it. You, can, you know the words. Um, and even though you know the tune and the words, there's sometimes where it just sort of rolls off and we don't completely understand the meaning of the song that we are singing. I think this is common. You turn on the radio, you got songs, you got tunes, you know, and you kind of bop along to them. And I'm convinced that if we actually knew the meaning to some of the songs that we're singing to on the radio, maybe we wouldn't actually be listening to those songs anymore because the meaning is a little questionable. Um, but it also happens with great songs that are, are good songs that are full of truth and beauty. And, and so uh, what happens, a lot of times this happens with hymns. These hymns that have been passed down from gener- generation to generation through the church. And they use a lot of old language. Like for example, one of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Um, there, there's a line in there that says, Here I Raise My Ebenezer. And we sing that song, I think we sang it last week maybe or two weeks ago. And, and many people are like, what the heck's an Ebenezer? Why are we raising like Ebenezer Scrooge, is that word? And that's, so there's a lot of times we come to words, we don't know what, what they mean. Or even phrases that seem so foreign to us. Another example would be, there's a song called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And even for Christians who understand the, the blood of Christ and what it does for us, the efficacious power of, of God's grace through the blood of Christ, there's still this weirdness about singing about a fountain full of of blood, And so there's a lot of strangeness in some of these old hymns that we sing, and you're, you're left scratching your head. It's like, I wonder what that actually means. And as I've been thinking about that, I, I realize that this is also the case with some of the songs that we know best, like these Christmas hymns that we sing year after year. And one of the songs that I think falls into this category is a song we sang this morning called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, with a song like Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you can hardly get past the title of the song without asking, what the heck is Hark? What, what is that? Or, or what's a herald angel? It's like a, a whole host of angels and they all are named Herald. Like, what is going on in this song? 
And we know that obviously it's a Christmas song, singing about Jesus' birth, and so we just kind of sing along to it without really probing too far into this. But one of the things that we're going to do in this Advent season, we're going to spend some time kind of hunkering down in this song um, and unpacking the meaning, the meaning of this beautiful song that we have, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, because it's so rich with scripture and doctrine and it's made to, it really it's written to make us glad in Christ. And so well, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna peruse through the lyrics of one of the most musically, what I'm convinced, most musically beautiful and theologically rich Christmas hymns that's ever been written. We're gonna trace down the inspiration of these lyrics that are rooted in scripture. And, and not only to find that this song is biblically based, but ultimately it's to help us be more joyful, to sing as the joyful Christians that we ought to be this Advent season. So that's what we're doing. Hark the herald angels sing. Now, the first verse, actually, before I get into the first verse, uh, which we're looking at today, we're gonna go verse by verse through this. I, I, before we jump into the verse, I, I wanna actually share a little bit of the history of the song because I think, I think this is fascinating. Um, the there's, this song is laced with all kinds of, um, like, in, in, the, in the church history, both the American church and the Reformation. So it's just loaded into this. For, for example, this song was initially written by a man by the name of Charles Wesley, who you may have heard of. He and his brother, um, John, they founded Methodism. Um, in 1739, the song was written by Charles Wesley. He was a great hymnist, um, wrote over 6,000 hymns, 6,000 hymns. And a lot of them we still sing today absolutely beautiful writing. And, and the song was originally titled Hymn for Christmas Day, which was meant to be sung to the tune of Christ the Lord is Risen Today, um, another song that he wrote. So that song was made for Easter, and you're singing that set of lyrics to that song, to that tune, and then uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and in fact, the, the opening line, da, 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 Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And then his buddy, George Whitfield, who is a friend of his, uh, actually one of the best preachers to ever walk the face of the earth, um, in 1758, he, because he was so good with words, he took what, what Charles Wesley had written and he tweaked some words, he added a verse, and then in 1758, we got more of what we now know as, as Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, th that's, that's a significant piece. These two guys played a vital role in American church history. Now, what gives it this extra back uh, of the reformational history is that uh, later on, a, a, nam a man by the name of, of William H. Cummings took this, these lyrics that, that um, Charles Wesley and George Whitfield worked together on and he set it to a tune uh, written by Mendelssohn, who was a, a, a German composer. And Mendelssohn had written this tune um, by, the, by the title of Festgesang. Um, and, and this song was written in tribute to Johannes Gutenberg. Now, if you know anything about the Reformation, Gutenberg, not directly connected to the Reformation, he played a vital role, however, by inventing the printing press so that way Bibles could get in the native language of people, and that's how the Word of God circulated throughout that part of the world. So, so this song, uh, the tune was written by Mendelssohn to, to acknowledge, to, to give a nod to um, Gutenberg, and all of this is wrapped up together. Now we have what we know as Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's a pretty fascinating history. Now, the song, um, 
the, the inspiration for the song, Wesley found the inspiration for the song um, in Luke chapter two. It's, it's a scenic, this, this angelic scene where the shepherds are out minding their pasture and angels show up and tell them about this babe born in Bethlehem. And all of a sudden a great host of angels appear and they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so this sparked uh, on the, the whole idea for the song, and each verse has a bit of a different sub-theme, a different scripture reference that takes us deeper into the story of Christmas. And so today, what we're going to look at is the first line. Let me, let me read the, the first verse. This is Hark that we sang it. So, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies with the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Now, we're gonna focus in on this line that we see, God and sinners reconciled. And, and that actually is a reference to Romans chapter five, which Marianne just read for us, verses six through 11. Let me just, again, read it so it's, your memory is refreshed. We've covered a lot of ground already. For while we are still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us, that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies while we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. There you see it, God and sinners reconciled. Now, verse 11 of that passage ends, ends with joyfulness. It ends with, it says, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ because the message of reconciliation, which comes to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, is good news. It is the best news. But in order to understand how good this news is, we must first understand the underlying bad news. John Calvin, on this passage, he remarks, there is no room for reconciliation unless where offense preceded it. So, so in order to have reconciliation, it means, it acknowledges the fact that there was, there was at one time a fracturing, a breaking. There was a, a downfall of a, a relationship that was in, is that things were good, then they were bad, and now something happened to restore those things back together. This means for us, God and sinners reconciled. It means that at one point we were on outs with God. We were at one point on really bad terms. Now, I don't really need to explain this too deep because I'm pretty sure all of us in the room have experienced relationships that have gone through turmoil, gone through fracturing, gone through a breakdown, whether it's a breakup or, or a friendship that's been, been um, you know, obviously it's taken a beating. You, you've experienced this breakdown, this this experience where things went from being great to something happening, and now I'm not exactly sure our standing. Like the, the walking on eggshells, you know, keeping people at arm's length, that, that's what the brokenness feels like. And, and that basically happens on a larger scale between sinners and God. And the reason for this, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three, where we see when sin enters the world in the Garden of Eden. God had created this, this space for man, 
for Adam and Eve. He, he gave them this glorious garden to tend to, to be fruitful and to multiply, to experience all of God's lavish blessings. And in this place of, of Eden, there was shalom, there was peace. Like the world worked how it should have. The, the relationship between, it was like literally the first ever perfect marriage, okay, between Adam and Eve. They had fellowship with God. They walked with God in the cool day. Everything was as it should have been. Everything was right. But when the serpent ends, enters into the world, he tempts Adam and Eve and he causes them, he, he, he takes temptation, and what happens is Adam and Eve rebel against the one commandment that God had given them. See that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Stay away from it. Don't, don't, don't eat of it. And the serpent talks them into doing it. They follow through on their sinful desires, and they are separated and alienated from God. God removes them from the place of peace. God sets them outside of the Garden of Eden. He, he sets an angel at the gate with a flaming sword to keep them out. Not, not because God is mean, because he did to protect them, because also in the, in the Garden of Eden was the tree of life, that if they were to have eaten the tree of life in that state, they forever would have had separation from God. They would have never been reconciled. So God puts them outside of Eden, and what we see is there, there, there is separation between God and man, not just in proximity, not just in the fact that they've left the garden, but their hearts now are antagonistic towards God. This is the state that everyone is born into this world, that our hearts are wicked, that they're corrupt, that we can't think straight. We can't, we can't desire rightly. And so when we see God in our sinful state, we have this disdain. In fact, scripture says that we were enemies of God, that, that we were hostile in mind and spirit towards the God who created us. And so there's this brokenness. And, and what we see here in the garden is, is not only does sin bring about a relational breakdown between creator and creation. But adjacent to this relational breakdown, there is a judicial problem. There is a legal problem because sin indicates a missing of the mark. Sin indicates that we have violated the standard that God laid out for us. And as we sin, what, what we're told in scripture is that it accumulates a moral debt. In fact, uh, Pastor Jesse made reference of it today in Romans 6. It tells us the wages of sin is death. And so as sin accumulates, so too does the consequences. So too does the wages, which is death. Now, because God is holy and just, because he is righteous, sin cannot just be swept under the rug. God, God can't just be like, you know what, it's cool. Really, it's fine, totally. Sin has to be dealt with in a righteous way, a righteous way, justice. So we see that the preceding bad news of, of Hark to Herald Angels saying that God and sinners are reconciled, that's the good news. The preceding bad news is that we are on relational outs with God. That we, we had a legal situation on our hands. That the wages of sin is death, this animosity, this, this brokenness is futile. Yet, and this is the state that actually in, in Romans chapter five that the apostle Paul mentions, for while we were still weak, while we were still on the outs with God, while we were still hostile towards God, 
It's in the midst of that brokenness. It's in the midst of that weakness that God intervenes for us. See, God didn't wait for you to get your stuff together. God didn't wait for you to kind of finally realize that your heart was antagonistic towards him, that your desires were warped and bent on sinful things. Instead, God took initiative and he came down, he came to us to intervene. That he would have such a profound effect on us by his grace that our minds would be changed, our hearts would be changed. Not because of anything we have done, but because of the power of God through the work of the Spirit and the message of the gospel. And so it's while we were in this ugly state, God worked to reconcile us. We, we, we aren't the ones who came, you know, like we didn't come to the table and say, you know, God, I realize we, we've been on the outs. I realize things haven't been right between us and we just like to bury that. Like we just, like we weren't the ones who started that conversation. God did. He, he came to us. Now, if we were hostile towards God, if we had animosity towards God, if, if our hearts were, were resistant and wanted nothing to do with God, what would ever cause him to move towards us like this in the first place? If we hated God. Now, it would be, it would be understandable if God moved toward us, if we were like, if we lightened up a little bit, or if we started being friendly toward God. That would make sense. Like it's sort of like we both put our guns down and now we can finally wave the white flag and have peace. No, it's like, no, our guns was, were still pointed at God and he moved to, towards us. Why? Why would God do such a thing? Now we're told in verse eight of Romans five, what moved God to do this for us? He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. The, the thing that motivated God to move towards us is his unilateral love. A, a love that, that on his own volition is just set on sinners like you and me. It's not because we were lovely. It's not because we were worthy of being loved. It's not because we were lovable that God loved us. It's because of, of God's love. His love is an incredible love. In fact, if, if we were to, to flip over to Colossians 1, it, we're told about his great love with which he loved us. The, the love that God has, and then really this is what what the Apostle Paul is trying to put up on display for us is that in spite of our weaknesses, it's God's love that comes and accomplishes what God wants to accomplish, namely reconciliation. It's God's prerogative. It's God's desire that he would reinstate us to a, a favorable position as if our sin had never happened, to bring us back to, to reconcile us, to bring us back into relationship. Now, this is a, a unique facet of Christianity. The language of reconciliation is seldom used in other religions because the relationship between human beings and the deity is not conceived in a personal way. Thus, it's viewed as inappropriate. So whereas scripture calls us friends of God because of faith in James 2, or, or where we're told that, that we are, uh, Jesus is a friend of sinners, 
Other world religions don't dare to talk about God in that kind of personal vernacular. They think it's too degrading for humans and God, and, and God Almighty to be viewed as, as friendly, to have this personal relationship. Yet, this is a key fixture of the Christian faith. To have a personal, now not going down the cheesy rabbit hole of a personal relationship and the warm fuzzy, but to literally have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That there's a corporal, corporate relationship with Jesus Christ. So much so that we are called sons and daughters of God. There is no relationship that transcends that profundity. Now, it, it makes sense. Well, I think, I think it's interesting. So to, to make that the distinction between Christianity and the terms that it used to be reconciled to have this relationship with God and, and other world religions, but it, it's interesting because Christianity has the most comprehensive understanding of who God truly is. It's interesting because the Christian's view of God, the understanding of God is that God is far more holy than any other religion suggests. That the God is to be regarded most highly and so on one hand, Christianity attests to that fact that, that his name is the name above every other name, yet at the same time, in redemption, God brings us close to him and reconciles us to this holy God. Sinners, now this, this is why it's so pr pr profound, because just as back in, in Eden where, where God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, the reason for that is because a holy God cannot exist in the presence of sinners, we're told that God is a consuming fire, right? Anything that comes into contact with him will be devoured, right? All unrighteousness and the sinners, that means we get devoured. But in redemption, as we are purified, as we are sanctified, God now is able, our sin burns off, we're, we're justified, and now we can enter into relationship with God. And this happens this happens through the humiliation of his one and only beloved son. It's because Jesus, who had communion with the Father since eternity past, put on flesh and entered into this world. That, that he took on the sins of the elect on the cross to pay for those then now we are granted access to be reconciled to God. And here's the, the crazy part here. In the cross, our sin and our shame is expiated from us. That means that, that the things that marked us, the sin, the guilt, the shame that plagued our hearts, that darkened our lives, the things that make us feel dirty and undeserving to be in communion with God, Jesus took those off of us and they were placed upon him there at the cross. Every single sin nailed with him to that cross. All your past, present, and future sins nailed paid in full. And at the same time, Jesus expiates and removes from us our sin. The righteousness of Jesus Christ gets applied to us. This is one of the things that Luther talked about in the Reformation, 
that, that we receive this alien righteousness that's not accomplished by our own works. It's not because we lived good lives. We're still weak. While we were still sinners, God gives us Christ's righteousness by faith. And in the shedding of the blood, so, so we see how, how Jesus is, is bringing us to the Father. He's functioning as that mediator who's bringing us back together, but also the legal demands, the legal implications, the legal problem that we had is dealt with there at the cross too. Paul tells us in Romans, he says that, that but God shows his love for us that and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he says in verse 10, uh, verse nine, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul says that we have been justified by the blood of Christ. You've been declared righteous in the sight of God. You're credited with Jesus' righteousness and you are reinstated to good standing with God. And as Psalm 185, or excuse me, Psalm 8510 says, this is where love and justice kiss. This is where we see God working on our behalf. Psalm 8510 says this, steadfast love and faithfulness meet righteousness and peace, kiss each other. The cross is where this happens where both the love of God and the justice of God are put on display. And so in, in one sense we can say that reconciliation is a key feature of the good news of the gospel. At one time you hated God. At one time your heart was far from God. At one time you didn't want anything to do with God. Yet he moved towards us to reinstate us in his love and favor. Now this is good news. Don't, don't don't miss that, right? To be justified by the blood of Christ is good news. But Paul uses this, this feature of, of, of from lesser to greater. So he says, if the blood of Christ has justified us, how much greater shall things be because we have Christ who lives for us? See, the good news gets even better. The good news of justification gets even better because if, if by Jesus' death we are justified and reconciled while we're still in, in our sin, while we're still weak and helpless, if it's the blood of Jesus that reconciles us and justifies us, it is the life of the resurrected and living Christ that keeps us in that state. See, the reconciliation that Jesus gives us isn't, isn't like, hey, I've, I've squared you and God up, and it's up to you now to maintain that. It's up for you now to keep it. No, no, Jesus says, hey, I've brought you back into relationship with God, and I'm going to see to it that it stays that way. So right now, at the right hand of the Father, there is the, a resurrected Savior, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's standing there interceding for us. Hebrews says that Jesus is our advocate. So when we sin, when we break the reconciliation that he's already achieved for us by his blood, he's there telling the Father, you see that sin right there? I paid for that too. Don't, don't turn away from them. Don't push them out. I've already died for this sin. And so this is, this is the good news of the gospel to an even greater extent 
Not only did Jesus die for you, but he right now is living for you. Now, if you understand this, if you understand just how glorious the gospel is, if you understand what God has done to give us, to to make us reconcile the sinners to a holy God, there are a few things, there's many things, but there are a few things that I want to highlight that ought to happen in the heart of a Christ. To understand that we have been reconciled to God first and foremost should humble us because we know that it's not us who did this. It's not us who worked to get into God's good graces. This was a gift from God. This was God's prerogative. We are not made right by our own efforts. We are made right by Jesus' work on the cross. And so that should humble us. Number two, knowing that Jesus is right now alive and interceding for us at the right hand of the Father ought to give us an incredible amount of confidence. Now, it might seem like there's, there's a bit of a, uh, a paradox here, to be humble and both confident, but not in the gospel. The gospel brings us low. We're humbled, but... At, In our place of humility, God exalts us in Christ. God brings us up. So we're we're not just left groveling in the dust, not just doing this navel-gazing feeling, oh, how poor, pitiful me, how sinful I am, God could. No, that doesn't happen. Because the work of Christ is sufficient, it works. We understand ourselves in light. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we need to repent. But ultimately, we understand ourselves in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, and we are declared righteous. And so because of that, we don't need to tiptoe around God. Now, we still maintain humility, but there's a confidence because as we repent of sin, as we claim, like, we we profess our faith in the gospel and, and recognize what Jesus has done for us, we know definitively we have been made right with God. There's no, like, speculating, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. If you have faith in Jesus, it It's true. You are right with God. And the Hebrews also tell us now, with confidence, let us draw near to the throne of grace. To be reconciled to God means that we can both humbly and confidently come to God in relationship. And three, as we are humbled, as we experience gospel confidence, we ought to rejoice in our exaltation. Because the pattern of the gospel is death to life, suffering to glory, humility to glorification. So we rejoice. We rejoice. Now, this is what verse 11 is getting at. He says, more than that, knowing that Christ's blood has justified us, knowing that Christ lives to keep us reconciled, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Christians ought to be the gladdest people on earth. Christians ought to be the most joyful, most exuberant people on the whole face of the earth because no matter what happens, no matter what trials, no matter what tribulation, no matter what kind of suffering comes, the main thing, the most important thing, which is relationship with God, is firmly fixed in Christ. And so we rejoice. Now this is why the spirit of Advent, I would say, the chief descriptor of Advent 
is joy. Gladness. This is why I think the Christmas, Christmas anthem is joy to the world. Right? That's the only response. That's the only appropriate response to understanding what God has done for us through Christ. And so in, in this place of humility, in this place of confidence, in this place of rejoicing, we let our praise resound. See, this, it's no wonder why the angels sing. In Luke chapter two, as they show up to the shepherds and, and say, glory to God in the highest and on, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, that peace that they're talking about is the reconciliation that can only come through the gospel. If you're not reconciled to God through the gospel, but this is the scandal of the gospel that Christ came to give us this peace and only the prince of peace can deliver that kind of peace. Only the prince of peace can bring us back into fellowship with God. Now the angels sing because this is incredible, but here's the other reason why they sing, because it's so scandalous. Angels don't get that kind of grace. The angels who have, who've rebelled against God are with Satan and will forever experience life apart from God. Angels don't get to experience reconciliation in the same way that humans do. And so they look into this gospel longingly. They're like, how can God do this? Yet he does. And so as the angels sing, we join them in singing because by faith we have received a reconciling grace that God and sinners truly are reconciled. And then we join the angelic chorus, glory to God in the highest. That, that's the in excelsis Deo, you know, Gloria in the highest, in that's what we're singing. Glory to God in the highest. Now, I know that this is like Christmas season and, and you're thinking like, for a sermon about the birth of Jesus, you're talking a lot about blood and death. But you need to understand, Jesus couldn't reconcile us to God without his death. If Jesus wasn't born in a manger in Bethlehem, there is no death, there is no reconciliation, there is no atonement. And if there is no death, there is no resurrection. And so as we, yes, we focus on the first coming of Christ. But we also need to have this whole story of the gospel in mind as we sing these songs. Jesus entered into the world knowing what it would cost him to bring us back to God. He came knowing that his blood would be shed, that his life would be given as a ransom for many. And so we have to, this Advent season, yes, we look forward to, to the second coming of Christ. We look backwards to when Christ came again. And as we look at the, the babe in the manger, we must know the whole of the story, blood and all. This is the only way peace comes to us. God's mission is to bring people back to himself. God's mission is to restore that which has been lost by sin, to reconcile us and to give us peace. And I'm praying today that Christian, you would understand in a more profound way the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And if, if you maybe are hearing the gospel for the first time, or maybe it's the thousandth time, and, and for the first time, something is starting to make sense. You understand your own brokenness. You understand that in your sinful state, you cannot come to God, but God had to come to you. 
then may you by faith draw near to God, to see the work of Christ accomplished on your behalf. Because in Christ, our reconciliation is complete. In Christ, our reconciliation is secure. So let us sing together, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your gospel. We know that if it was left to us, we would never have come to you. We never have would gotten the wits about us to say, you know what, today I'm gonna get my life together. But because your grace is strong, you, Lord, have come to us and you draw us to yourself. Jesus said, the only people who come to the Father are those who are being drawn to the Father. And so this morning we pray, Lord, that your, your grace, your power would be efficacious, that there would be a drawing to you both in the hearts of Christians and those who, who are not Christians that would come to know and to love you, that they would see the glory of the gospel and the reconciliation that has been afforded for us and that we would join in the anthem of the angels singing glory to God in the highest in relationship to you through the work of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the peace that you bring. We thank you, Lord, that right now Jesus is interceding for us, making sure that, that, that reconciliation continues to be maintained. Lord, we trust in you to do all these things until our day's end, until you return. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.